continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I'm Justin Burke. <laughs> it's just me and you, Angela. Me and I you, know, no Chris. Chris usually fills in that gap, so I was waiting it's, for him uh, to jump in. It's uh, you know, a sad loss that we're without him today, but I think uh, we had a lot of fun. This was a great episode. We, You brought us a tremendous guest, Angela. Dr. Hannibal Person uh, is here to discuss yield with bowel syndrome or IBS. What a great show. It was outstanding. Before we go into some of the details about him and what we talked about, though, Angela, can you remind us about the show? Oh, I certainly will. I'm so excited to get to do Chris's part tonight. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the field to bring clinical pearls, participating knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Hannibal Person. Angela, tell us about him. Absolutely. Dr. Hannibal Person is, is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Seattle Children's Hospital. His clinical interests include disorders of gut-brain interaction, and he is a director of the Gut-Brain Health Program. He is passionate about anti-racism and healthcare practice, and his research focuses on educational interventions to mitigate provider bias. Outside of work, you can find him exploring Seattle with his dog, Molly, and singing in the Seattle Men's Chorus. He was outstanding. He teaches about functional MRI and other objective findings of IBS, the role of not only diet and behavioral medicine and pharmacological medicines, but also hypnosis, acupressure, some of the other complementary medicines that have some new evidence for, and tells us how some evidence suggests negative EGDs actually decrease a parent's reassurance and increases anxiety. So that referral to GI might not always be the best. This was great. Tons of content. Tons of good pearls. You know, Justin, I have a gut feeling that our listeners are really going to enjoy this episode. So why don't we just get to it? I crushed it. (laughs) Crushed it. Dr. Hannibal Person, welcome to the Cribsiders. Excited to have you. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. Happy to be here. We are grateful to have you, to learn from you, and to talk about IBS today. Before we get started, would love to ask because we're an informal group, is it okay if we refer to you by your first name, Hannibal? Oh, yeah, that's fine. All right. Excellent. Thank you, Hannibal. We're friends already. This is great. Um, we're friends, but and our listeners also definitely want to be friends. They want to learn a little bit more about you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Maybe give us a one-liner to describe yourself and maybe something that you enjoy outside of medicine. Yeah, I'm a PEDS GI doc here at uh, Seattle Children's Hospital, uh, University of Washington, um, I'm really passionate about disorders of gut-brain interaction, like irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, outside of work, uh, most of my time and unfortunately money goes towards my dog and her outfits, uh, lovely little schnauzer mix. Um, and I love uh, singing. I love all things performance art. And I'm in a Seattle men's chorus. Amazing. The schnauzer and the Seattle men's chorus. Uh, I'd love to hear more about what, what are activities you do with your dog? What's the, what's the personality of your dog? What's the one-liner of Sally? Is that right? Uh, Molly. <laughs> Molly, I'm sorry. Molly, Molly. What's Molly's uh, personality? Yeah, Molly uh, loves everybody. Um, we're getting into hiking now. She's uh, Her first uh, set of uh, personalized hiking boots are on the way, um, but uh, she's uh, becoming quite the outdoors uh, dog after eight years in New York. Uh, that's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Something else I wanted to ask is, um, you know, what do you think is the best advice you've ever received? Yeah. I mean, I've been so lucky to have so many great mentors, but one of the old um, sort of adages that comes back to me every time is uh, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? I think so much of our education, our careers just feel so overwhelming. And I think if you can just sort of keep swimming, keep, you know, just eating that elephant uh, one step at a time, you'll be surprised what you can accomplish. I love that. I feel like anything in life, even not just in medicine, I think those are good ways to kind of approach big projects, big goals. I would love, you know, one of the things we try to do on the show is kind of normalizing failure and kind of talking about imposter syndrome and trying to hear people who have found success in their careers talk a little bit about challenges that they faced early on. And so I was hoping, could you talk to us about maybe one of your favorite failures or something you learned from a failure at some point in your life or career? 
Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I completely agree that failures sometimes, you know, where, you know, an idea or a new sense of motivation that directs the next step really comes from. Um, I, I think one uh, time that I failed pretty colossally was related to one of my first projects in medical education, where I went in feeling like I knew a lot more than I did, that I had the mentorship that I needed when I didn't. Um, and it, it, it crashed and burned uh, trying to write curriculum uh, without the necessary background. And so um, out of that came uh, sort of a recommitment uh, to um, building my skill set in medical education and in curriculum development. And uh, it's been a very important part of my like research and my career and just what I love to do as uh, someone in academic medicine um, that came from a moment of really recognizing my limitations. I love that. A way to kind of double down on those uh, uh, skills. That's that's really excellent. Love those stories. I let's uh, what do you think, Angela? Let's let's it's me and you. Let's dive into some content. But before we do that, let's hear from one of the sponsors that helps support the show. This episode is brought to you by Pattern. Pattern is the number one physician-recommended provider for disability insurance. At Pattern, they use data-driven approaches to streamline the process for securing a policy, eliminating wasted time, and preventing confusion for doctors like you. You have other things to do. Head to patternlife.com slash curbsiders and request your free quote directly from the website. Then review your options with a trusted advisor and ask any questions that are on your mind. Finally, you can secure your policy and take on your future with confidence. Work with Pattern and leave as an educated, fully insured physician with peace of mind regarding your financial future. All right. So our case, so you're seeing a 14-year-old patient, Magna. She's coming to you with a chief concern of abdominal pain for a few months now. Um, she's been having belly pain. She described it as cramping. It happens at unpredictable times, but sometimes you know, it's so bad that she actually has to miss school. Um, she uses heat packs, ibuprofen, um, but usually going to the bathroom is the most useful thing for her pain. A little bit of diarrhea, but, you know, she thinks it's due to different foods that she's having. And before we get into the family and social history, maybe we should pause here and talk about when you think about abdominal pain, you know, do you have general buckets of diagnoses or frameworks for thinking about how to best approach like Megna's any further history or exam or anything like that? Yeah, I would say in terms of uh, just kind of conceptualizing what's going on, uh, I think a lot of us are sort of trained to think about this distinction between functional and organic disorders, right? I was always taught, oh, you rule out an organic process. And if you don't find anything, it's functional. Um, I think, you know, I don't want to bore everybody, but there's a history to this. In fact, um, part of the reason that uh, in Europe they were able to begin doing autopsies uh, was the idea that you could separate the spirit and the soul from the actual body. And so you could do an autopsy and it wasn't desecrating a corpse. And they had to convince the Christian church that that was okay. And since that very early moment in our history, in terms of medicine, there's been this, uh, you know, very stark separation between mental health and physical health that really doesn't exist in our day to day practice, right? We know that they're so intermingled and so uh, important to address simultaneously. Um, and so I will answer your question, but I just wanted to get you know, on my soapbox for a moment and say that this whole kind of uh, diagnosis process that a lot of people have in their head will figure out if it's organic and if it's not organic, move to functional, really works to underserve uh, patients with functional disorders, not only because it promotes stigmatization in terms of them being, you know, sort of blamed for their illness or treated like, you know, just a quote unquote psychiatric patient who happens to have physical symptoms. But also, um, as we learn more about these functional disorders, the more we're realizing that there are pathophysiologic underpinnings. And so we're really mischaracterizing and um, kind of incompletely studying and understanding these disorders. In terms of thinking about abdominal pain, I sometimes give a talk where I put a list of the differential diagnosis for abdominal pain, which you can imagine includes so many different systems, so many different scenarios, and so many different patients that it really, you know, I see, I watch learners' eyes kind of turn to pinwheels a bit because they're like how every time I see someone with abdominal pain, I have to think of these 120 diagnoses. Um, and so to me, one of the most important things, you know, you can have your buckets in your head in terms of inflammatory, infectious, et cetera, and that can be helpful. But to me, it's all about really getting kind of very granular and very specific in terms of the symptomatology and looking at related systems that can sometimes give you a hint in terms of what's going on. And so already in hearing this um, vignette, you know, I have a dozen questions about the quality of the pain, um, all the dimensions of the symptom uh, that I think would really help uh, kind of drive uh, decision making in terms of what diagnostics are needed or just uh, present you with the diagnosis. I think it's a really helpful framework and to show some reticence to immediately 
compartmentalizing functional and organic. And I admit as a primary care provider, sometimes I feel less empowered and, you know, it's my own impotence in taking care of patients with, with functional disorders because there's so much, I think, harder for classically medically trained providers to to address. And so, you know, I, I feel like we hold on to those, you know, elevated lipases or CT findings where it's if this, then this. And IBS is such a great example, I think, of some of the ambiguity of medicine. So I think this is a great place to start. And so without going through and, and knocking out every inflammatory or focal disease, we'll read the last page of the chapter and say, you know, this is someone that we're suspicious of IBS. We'll talk about specific red flags first, but can you maybe tell us what is IBS? What are what do we know about IBS? What still needs to be known about IBS? And then we'll get into maybe how to how to look for diagnostic cues. Yeah. Um, so irritable bowel syndrome is a disorder of gut-brain interaction. And this is the new um, kind of naming of these disorders, disorders of gut-brain interaction. The idea being that calling them functional gastrointestinal disorders is not only kind of inaccurate because they're really disorders where the gut and the brain are not communicating well, uh, but also moving away from some of the stigma of uh, functional GI disorders. And um, so IBS is one of a long list of conditions that can affect anywhere in the digestive system, leading to symptoms where you have poor communication between the central nervous system and the enteric nervous system, or the second brain of the body of the gut. And so in irritable bowel syndrome, the two big things to think about are abdominal pain and changes in bowel habits. And that can come in the form of diarrhea, it can come in the form of constipation. And in many, especially teenagers, it can actually be a mixed phenotype with alternating diarrhea and constipation. Sometimes that's quite brittle and changes on a day-to-day -day basis, and sometimes with longer periods of different stool types, and sometimes even normal bowel movements. I think one of the most important distinctions is a lot of kids with irritable bowel syndrome get labeled as having functional constipation and their abdominal pain is attributed to constipation. And I see these kids who for three or four years have been treated with, you know, laxatives and told, well, they're just constipated. And, you know, someone gets an abdominal film every now and then to prove that there's poop there. Um, when really, if you effectively manage the constipation, you have a child who's having a soft bowel movement every day, who has a normal exam uh, and possibly reassuring imaging, if they're still having you know chronic abdominal pain, it's irritable bowel syndrome, it's not functional constipation. And it does open up a whole bevy of treatment modalities that move beyond simply encouraging regular bowel movements that will really help their pain and really hopefully uh, turn them away from kind of a path towards disability related to their symptoms. Thinking about irritable bowel syndrome in terms of its pathophysiology, the short answer is it's complex. And every time I turn around or open Twitter, there's a new article <laughs> positing some new dimension of this. Uh, but the way I like to describe it to my patients is thinking about uh, not only these you know, kind of two siblings in terms of the central nervous system and the enteric nervous system that are sort of bickering and not getting along, but this idea of sort of visceral hypersensitivity and this idea that normal digestion, normal contraction of your intestine, normal stretch of your rectum before bowel movement now becomes something that's threatening and painful. And what happens when your brain is inundated with messages that something is wrong? Well, you start becoming very hypervigilant of your body. You're checking in. You're constantly threatened. Any signaling from your gut takes on this increased salience and importance that you're going to respond to. And it's going to start affecting your thoughts, your feelings, your uh, behaviors, um, and, and you know, hopefully not, but unfortunately tends to move people towards a state of kind of malaccommodation and disability. And so I'll tell, talk to them about the uh, implications of the microbiome in terms of changes in microbiome leading uh, to uh, increased um, kind of symptoms through pressure, through gas production, through uh, fluid secretion in the bowels. Uh, we'll talk about evidence that there's this subclinical inflammatory process involving cells like mast cells, um, an exaggerated reaction to certain food allergens and studies, and certainly things that we are beginning to understand in terms of functional MRI studies in the brain, suggesting the um, kind of uptick of pain networks, of emotional regulation networks, of salience networks, all of which work together to not only promote the pain experience, but also actually inhibit the brain's ability to send descending signals to sort of tell the gut to knock it off. This isn't important. Um, so really kind of really uh, the cat sort of out of the bag at that point, because you're losing your descending um, inhibitory functions. And so you get this kind of influx of signaling that's sort of changing the relationship between your gut and your brain. This is fascinating. And Angela, and, and I know you're into the next question, but I wanted to follow up on that because I think the fMRI studies is not something I'm familiar with, but it does remind me of, there's a book called Behave by uh, Robert Sapolsky that talks about PTSD individuals for veterans that were having PTSD symptoms. Early on, it seemed like people were saying that these were functional, you know, these were, were kind of in the head. And then 
they had fMRI imaging that kind of showed major changes. And there was this kind of like, oh, it is a real thing. And the author, you know, talks about, yeah, or you should just have believed them in the first place and addressed it, you know, without having to have the objective evidence of the fMRI. And it sounds like maybe this is where the horizon of IBS or where we're already at with IBS, which I was unaware of, of seeing some of these objective findings in in MRI findings. Is that correct? Is that is that safe to say? Absolutely. I mean, we need more pediatric data. Most of this research is in adults. Um, but in terms of whether it be neuroimaging, uh, there's a device that they're working on that actually measures bowel sounds um, and actually might be able to differentiate IBS uh, from healthy controls and IBD remains to be seen. Um, but also this um, storyline of this subclinical inflammatory picture with the increased in certain, you know, complement of certain inflammatory cells like mast cells, um, and even uh, studies where they've done a colonoscopy and injected a food allergen into the colonic lining of someone with IBS and shown this exaggerated reaction with co-localization of these inflammatory cells to the visceral nerve endings. All of these not only pose really exciting options for treatment, things you could target, um, but also diagnostic modalities. Wow, this is cool. I kind of just want to keep nerding out about that, but we can go back to the case. Um, so something I didn't mention about Magna was her like family and other history. And so now let's talk a bit more about like like risk factors for IBS. So, you know, her younger sibling was just diagnosed with asthma and eczema. Her maternal aunt has Crohn's. Um, she's actually a new patient because her family just moved here and she's looking forward to making new friends, but she's pretty nervous. She started a new school in the fall. And so I think with her history medical and otherwise, like what in this like makes you think about IBS? Um, we can talk about that, the diagnostic criteria, if that's helpful here as well. Yeah, I, I would say definitely screening for kind of um, adverse um, childhood experiences and your know, trauma history can be really important, which is a risk factor for later developing IBS and other functional GI disorders. It's kind of tricky because I think you're just first meeting someone and you're like, well, let's delve into trauma history. I think a lot of us are very reluctant or don't feel like we have the time or the space or the support from you know our our you know uh, support system and behavioral health always to you know broach some of these topics. Um, but I would remind folks that there are are very well-designed and fairly straightforward trauma assessments that could even be completed by the patient or their family prior to the visit um, if you, you know, had that in your practice as a way of sort of understanding uh, that as a risk factor for that or other you know, um, kind of conditions. To me, uh, you know, I'm hearing a lot in the story, a lot of transition, a lot of stressors, a lot of kind of uh, new potential challenges. Um, certainly, we know in irritable bowel syndrome that there is some sort of genetic underpinning, though there's certainly not a gene panel you can order, but it does tend to cluster in families. And so that's a kind of important uh, thing to understand, much like people would ask about the history of Crohn's disease you mentioned, um, also obviously uh, highly uh, genetic um, in terms of uh, uh, inheritance. And then in terms of diagnostic criteria, you know, I, I always struggle a little bit because, you know, the Rome Foundation has made the diagnostic criteria for irritable bowel syndrome. We're now on to Rome 4, um, the fourth iteration. And like most diagnostic criteria, just like when you look at the DSM or these other things, it's really great for research. We all have to sort of agree that if we're doing a study, everyone has to meet certain criteria. But it's tricky, right? With the change to Rome 4, there was a concern that that a number of patients that had IBS were not being diagnosed or were not being diagnosed promptly based on stricter criteria. And in fact, they just revised Rome 4 and put on this sort of clinical modifier that you don't have to wait the full amount of time to meet criteria. If you have a patient you think it's IBS, you can treat it like IBS. You don't have to wait a couple months to make the diagnosis. So in an effort to better support patients so they're not sitting around twiddling their thumbs until someone's willing to make the diagnosis. And so I, I find the that criteria to be very useful. Um, and I think it's very useful to give patients and their families a diagnosis, something that they can look up and they know is a real disorder. Um, but I, I find in my day-to-day -day clinical practice, especially seeing all the various variations of IBS, that if you over-rely on clinical criteria, there are some people that um, whose experience will not be recognized. And I think there's, again, you know, with all these things, major issues in terms of equity, uh, because you know, you've got certain cultures where you're working with a language interpreter and they don't use the word bloated. You know, they don't use certain language. And so if you're heavily basing your diagnostic criteria off a specific experience of any sort of GI symptom, including pain, um, there can be an opportunity to, for being culturally exclusive. And so I think the diagnostic criteria is something to learn and something to apply, but not something that should be the sole way of identifying someone with irritable bowel syndrome at this point. While we're on that topic, I think, you know, I kind of wanted to talk about further like workup you would do while you get to know Magna. But since you talked about inequities, I think that was like one of our 
you know, my big things I was wondering is, um, you know, what what do you kind of see in terms of like access to care and bias that might point someone to or away from IBS kind of unfairly? You know, I think about IBS and I think about like a typical patient would be like femme appearing, you know, um, or like a young, like a teenager. And so I feel like I don't have a great idea of the breadth of the population that IBS can affect. Yeah, it's an excellent question. And what I would say is that, you know, we it is woefully understudied in terms of racial and other health inequity in terms of the disorder of gut-brain interaction space. There is some adult lit- literature suggesting racial health inequity uh, in terms of uh, diagnosis and management, but it's still, uh, even on the adult side, understudied. Certainly, if we look at the broader kind of landscape of research, particularly the treatment of uh, pain in black and brown bodies, there's a lot of potential concern for sort of how young people presenting with chronic abdominal pain or being um, evaluated, how they're being treated, how they're being supported, but we just don't know and we need a a lot more research in that regard and some of that research is happening, uh, which is great. Um, To me, I do think IBS has largely been labeled and certainly if you watch a lot of representations of in the media, it's typically, um, you know, uh, cis women um, who are largely white um, and even a lot of ads for certain products related to, you know, IBS, um, a lot of their spokespeople have been cis white women. Um, And that's hugely problematic, one, because you can be five or six years old and have IBS. And so the assumption that, well, you're not a teenager yet, this is functional abdominal pain, or this must be something else, I think is a disservice uh, to some of our patients who don't fit you know, the, you know, teenage girl model, but I also think male presenting uh, patients um, are, could potentially be disadvantaged because of an assumption that IBS is uh, something for femme presenting patients. Um, And while there is definitely literature on gender differences uh, in IBS, I I don't think it's compelling enough that you would ever not consider the diagnosis based on someone's uh, gender. And this is really great. And so I think to help understand what things to be looking for, regardless of of age and, and gender, Uh, presenting symptoms in history. You mentioned things like uh, screening for adverse childhood events. You mentioned the transition and and maybe concomitant anxiety symptoms. I know that Rome criteria really focuses on pain with defecation or change in pain related to defecation, stool frequency and form. Are there other things that we should be looking at, especially comparing to functional constipation? Are there other things that we should be looking for as data points that do point in the IBS direction? One thing I would look at is comorbid chronic pain conditions. We know that chronic headache, chronic pelvic pain, chronic musculoskeletal pain, and fibromyalgia are far more common in patients with disorders of gut-brain interaction. And that's not only really important, not only diagnostically in in terms of your conceptualization of the patient, what they're going through, but there's missed opportunities when uh, certain treatments can actually help multiple issues. Um, and so I've seen it where, you know, a patient has been really well supported by multiple subspecialists between their neurologist for chronic headaches, their gastroenterologist for chronic abdominal pain, et cetera. But when no one's really communicating, someone starts a medicine that could be really great for headache prophylaxis, but never communicated with the neurologist. And that absence of care coordination is a disservice to the patient. Um, I would say the biggest thing for me when I'm in clinic beyond sort of looking for these other comorbidities and really understanding the dimensions of the symptom and the effect of the symptoms on the functioning of the child uh, is really looking for, um, you know, quote unquote, alarm symptoms that really should prompt more of a workup. Um, Because again, IBS is not a diagnosis of exclusion. It's a diagnosis you can make right in the clinic with an appropriate history and physical exam. Um, And so the idea that every child with chronic abdominal pain needs a blood panel, stool testing, and an endoscopy is not only a huge waste of resources and really uh, not feasible, but also introduces much more potential for atrogenic harm. Um, and so some of the alarm features and Rome uh, publishes a very comprehensive list to their website, but the things I think about are losing weight or failure to gain weight in children, failure to meet pubertal milestones, pain patterns that are speak to a specific process like isolated right lower quadrant abdominal pain as either uh, appendicitis or Crohn's disease, colicky right upper quadrant pain as hepatobiliary disease, those sort of things that just are a little less classic in terms of IBS symptomatology. Blood coming out of anywhere is never good, um, so definitely should prompt some workup, though some of these kids are quite constipated and have uh, anal fissures. 
really refractory vomiting um, should prompt more of a workup, though. Um, remember, some of these kids have rumination syndrome, and it could become really important to suss out whether they're ruminating or whether they're truly vomiting. Severe pain, pain that wakes you up at night, certainly nocturnal bowel movements uh, is a biggie. When you're asleep, your colon's supposed to be asleep. If a kid's waking up to poop at night, they have proctitis until proven otherwise. Uh, and then other kind of potential extraintestinal manifestations of uh, chronic bowel disease. Um, think uh, joint pains, think characteristic rashes, um, think mouth sores, think unexplained fevers. Um, these are all things that would not go with irritable bowel syndrome. And can you talk a little bit about the categorizations or the different variations of irritable bowel syndrome? For example, if someone's presenting with you know prominent diarrhea symptoms, would you be doing a workup for chronic diarrhea or are there still specific things similarly where if they are having chronic loose stools but none of these alarm symptoms and having a lot of the other comorbidities, would you pursue empiric treatment and seeing if that helps before going through you know the stool studies and presumably low-yield workup, but something that I feel like we do for chronic diarrhea? Yeah. I, chronic diarrhea, um, especially in kids, uh, is I think a very uh, tricky thing. And I went from being someone who was very skeptical about like working it up too much to someone who now is a little bit more in favor of just getting a stool calprotectin, which is very reassuring if it's negative that there isn't some, you know, colonic inflammatory process. And usually if I'm getting a calprotectin, especially for, you know, sort of more shorter uh, diarrhea duration, I'm usually getting stool infectious studies, which can drive up your number. And if there's weight loss um, or scatteria or something else, considering mal a malabsorption workup through stool. Um, a lot of these kids also with the chronic pain process, you'll think about checking a stool H pylori antigen if you're already putting them through the headache of sending in a stool sample. Um, all of these things I think are completely reasonable. Um, and certainly, you know, it's not just our decision making, right? We have families in front of us who are concerned and who have a, an aunt with Crohn's disease. Um, and so to me, being able to show, you know, the stool calprotectin is normal. We did do, you know, you have a family history of celiac disease, your celiac serology is negative, your inflammatory markers are negative, your albumin is normal. Uh, go a long way in reassuring both uh, the family and you uh, that uh, more workup isn't needed. The one thing I would caution, though, is a lot of times I think people enter this mindset where they're like negative testing will reassure the family. There actually was a study that showed that after endoscopy, uh, negative endoscopy, families uh, with uh, kids with functional abdominal pain were more anxious and sought more testing. So I would just be careful. Sometimes I think we treat that subspecialty referral or that, oh, we'll just get some tests as something that will automatically reassure the family. We actually don't have data to support that. Um, and so I would just be cautious. That's fascinating and, 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 a, and a great pearl. And I, I, I did a, a shotgun double barrel question, but the other topic, the variations of irritable bowel syndrome. I know that especially if I have a kid with IBS in front of me or uh, presuming IBS and I'm looking up the treatment, you know, the up-to-date very much differentiates by predominant symptom. Can you talk a little bit about the variations of IBS and, and how that, how someone uh, such as yourself kind of use those distinctions? Yeah, it's super tricky. I think especially because a lot of kids can't give you an amazing stool history and they'll very much focus on what happened in the past week or so. But when you really kind of get into it, uh, you'll start to see like, oh, wait, you were constipated like for a whole month this summer and I'm, you know, taking polyethylene glycol. And so it, it can be a little tricky, but really what I'm trying to suss out is stool pattern, whether that's veering towards constipation, whether that's veering towards diarrhea or uh, mixed and what is the rate of switching between different stool types? Is this someone who will have three days of horrific diarrhea and then all of a sudden doesn't poop for two weeks? Or is this someone that has much longer periods uh, within a certain stool pattern? And I find that really helpful not only to direct what treatment you want to offer and apply, but also because it becomes very easy to start chasing your tail using treatment, trying to achieve the perfect poop schedule. And all of a sudden you're throwing Miralax at this kid who seems constipated, but then getting messages by, you know, through Three days later, they're having diarrhea, but is it overflow or is it really diarrhea? Well, maybe we should get a KUB and assess and it just becomes this thing. So I, I'm a big fan of like start low, go slow, get, uh, you know, really request a lot of feedback from the family, how things are going. A poop diary can be helpful if there's really a lot of confusion in terms of kind of assessing out what's really going on, uh, just because uh, not every kid is really looking or is a great historian, even if you put a Bristol stool chart in front of them. And I find in my practice, a lot of uh, folks, even though they might present with a predominant uh, stool pattern that seems more like diarrhea or constipation, if you're overzealous with treatment can easily flip um, into another and uh, creating a new issue. So just so I feel like this is a really interesting 
point you made about maybe kids with like functional constipation, quote unquote, actually maybe having more of an IBS picture. I feel like I see so many kids in the ED and clinic who present with constipation or being chronically treated. So do you think it'd be right to say like you might treat somebody like initially clean out, but if they just continue to have, you know, strange pain or bowel habits or kind of swing the other, other direction without Miralax, then you might suspect something like IBS? Uh, absolutely. And what I would say is I think there's a lot of provider bias in this regard. You know, you're seeing this kid with belly pain. You maybe get some vague history of constipation or maybe of some imaging that suggests, you know, quote unquote, increased stool burden. And then it becomes functional constipation for the next five years. Um, and you always have to reassess. And what I tell my families, particularly when pain is the presenting complaint, not constipation, I tell them is that I think that your child's constipation is contributing to their symptoms and might even be solely responsible for their symptoms. And I think our first priority is to achieve, you know, soft, regular bowel movements to see how they feel. There is a possibility that the pain will only get a little better with this, might not get better at all. And that's when I explain functional abdominal pain and say that it can come with constipation. And I prime them in that way because one, you don't want to see that kid four to six months later and they've been now missed, you know, on average, 10 days of school a month because, you know, the family didn't feel supported or like they just kept saying, well, it's constipation, give more Miralax. Um, but I really want an update from them after, you know, we do the clean out after we have a few weeks of kind of more regular bowel movements. I really want to see what's happening with the pain pattern because if the kid's still suffering in a lot of pain, despite control of constipation, it's much less, you really can't call it functional constipation by criteria at that standpoint. And you're potentially over time, once you meet criteria, looking at a diagnosis of IBSC or something else. Um, and, you always want to be leery because while 95% of the time it is really functional constipation, that other 5% of the time can sometimes be very hard to identify amongst the sea of other constipated children. And so you already want these families to be, you know, not just live on Miralax, you know, uh, you want to sort of have a good sense of where the child's going symptomatically to further convince yourself, even if it is functional constipation, the pain's much better that it truly is functional constipation. And when you're describing this to a family, maybe a new diagnosis of IBS and giving your discussion of the, the mind-body aspect and you know the gut-brain connection, do you talk about anxiety causing abdominal pain? Is that something you have patients look for? Or is that kind of reinforcing that hypervigilance you were talking about? How do you, I guess, counsel a family on the original diagnosis monitoring and especially, I think, with the the anxiety component. I always worry, like I ask, like, oh, does it come up with anxiety? Like, okay, then I start thinking about that. And I don't know that that's actually the, the most appropriate um, pathway to go down. Yeah, anxiety is so important. I mean, stress is so toxic to all of us, no matter what's going on in our bodies, that it's important to address that. Um, and if there is, you know, a formal anxiety disorder or offering, you know, real treatment promptly, you know, could be, you know, a, a real lifesaver for a child. I do tend to, and this again is my soapbox, but I do tend to not overemphasize anxiety as much. And part of that is because as a gastroenterologist, most of the time, by the time the child's seeing me, the family's already been told in a primary care setting, oh, your child might just be anxious. And I kind of want to move away from that because I think that feeds into a pattern of blaming the child for their illness and sort of, uh, you know, kind of feeds into mental health stigma that we have. And so what I do is I actually start by talking about the gut and what's going on in the gut and how pain from the gut is signaled. And I even bring up the literature about the gut microbiome potentially influencing our, our thoughts and mood um, through, you know, release of certain bioactive particles that it could influence the brain. And I sort of say, you know, it could actually be your gut that's making you anxious, not your anxiety making your gut not work. A few examples I like to give to kind of um, illustrate the mind-body connection is a lot of people can relate to the idea of having like something like butterflies in their stomach. And you can sort of say, what, what a weird thing that anticipation of something could create a physical sensation in your stomach. The other thing that I like to give an example of is, uh, uh, especially in, I guess, uh, colder climates, when people wake up in the morning or headed to school and they put on their jacket. And I'll really have them think like, you know, what was it like putting on a jacket? What's the lining of your jacket like? Did it feel scratchy on your arm? Did it feel heavy all of a sudden? Because you were just wearing PJs before. And they'll say, well, how did it feel by the time you walked into school? And they'll typically say, well, you know, I didn't even remember I was wearing a jacket until I, I saw the visual cue of the hanger that I had to hang it up. And I say, that's really how your gut's supposed to be. You know, you get some initial sensation from eating, some, you know, satisfaction feeling good from eating. Uh, but then it's really supposed to just go quiet, even though everything's happening. If I listen, I can hear all the movement and everything turning. You're not really supposed to feel it. It's supposed to be like that jacket. And what's happening for you is that your brain is assigning too much importance to that jacket. And now all of a sudden you're feeling everything. 
That's a great metaphor. I I'm probably going to steal that. And I think the uh, using the the microbiome for anxiety is 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 interesting too. Let me. Are personal question? Are you big on like a non-inflammatory diet or or vegan diets? Like, is this something that is the future of gut health going into the future? Should Angela and I be drinking like a green supplement in the morning? Oh gosh, it's so controversial. I don't want to say too much or I'll get hate mail. No, what I'll say is this, you know, to me, the literature has always supported a Mediterranean diet. I mean, across the board, regarding what angle you slice it, there's even now two randomized control trials about the modified Mediterranean diet treating depression in adults. Um, actually lowering depression scores. Um, and so to me, I'm of the camp that I think you form your microbiome within the first four to five years of life. And there's certain things you can do through um, antimicrobials, through diet, through supplements to shift it and and tweak it. And there certainly is an adult, a few adult studies of IBS where they've used yogurt or other supplements to sort of shift the microbiome and change symptoms and actually even uh, neuroimaging. Um, which is pretty exciting. But I'm sort of, I sort of feel like we need to focus on like early childhood health for many reasons. But number one should be like getting away from this ultra processed Western diet um, and helping kids develop healthy microbiomes that'll serve them their entire life. I think once you're older, you know, certainly the low FODMAPS diet is very popular for chronic abdominal pain and has some positive evidence in kids, though it's debated um, uh, as there's a few studies that show that just typical dietary counseling is the same, has the same efficacy of reducing abdominal pain as low FODMAPS. Um, there are many other anti-inflammatory or gut cleanse things out there that I'm a bit skeptical of until we get more data. But I, I do think that's a direction the research is heading in terms of helping people feel better and also staving off uh, certain human illness. And it's, I think it's a tremendously exciting and holds tremendous promise for us. I just don't think we've really decoded it yet. This is amazing. I think I'm going to go down a deep rabbit hole uh, after after the recording. But this is amazing. This is a, a nice uh, kind of tangential pearl. This episode is brought to you by Uncommon Goods. Hey, if you haven't finished your holiday shopping yet, don't panic. We've got a secret source for incredible original gifts. That's Uncommon Goods. UncommonGoods.com has the absolute best gifts for everyone in your life. We're talking moms. We're talking dads, teens, in-laws, besties. Your secret crush in the radiology department, they have a gift for everyone. And it's not stuff you can find just anywhere. Uncommon Goods has unique and creative gifts. Skip the last-minute gifts and find something truly original at UncommonGoods.com. Some of my favorite things from the site, a portable campfire, a Bluetooth banana phone, a Mars Zen garden, and some hot cocoa bomb toolkits. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and made in the United States. They have the most meaningful out of ordinary gifts anywhere. From art to jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. And with every purchase you made at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. So, to get 15% off your next gift, go to UncommonGoods.com slash Cribsiders. That's UncommonGoods.com slash Cribsiders for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, they're out of the ordinary. Great. Are there things, um, as a quick time, a timeout breaking character, Angela or, or Hannibal, are there things we want to talk about before we start diving into treatment? We've kind of talked about history. Um, we've talked about some of the avoiding of the work of other things that we want to talk about before going into treatment? I just wanted to clarify for when I read the show notes and stuff. I was reading the ACG guidelines and I know like adults and kids might be a little bit different, but do you test your patients for celiac? Because that was like one of the strong recommendations to like always, maybe not always, but like usually test them. Like, is that an exception to not working up a lot? Um, it definitely is an exception to do a blood draw on a kid. It's, I think the pediatric guidelines are not as clear. Um, mm. And I kind of would say in the absence of family history or alarm symptoms, it's okay to not test for celiac. That being said, the pendulum has really just globally swung towards screening. And I can't tell whether that's the celiac kind of mafia, like really just pushing us all to screen everyone, um, or whether it actually is serving patients. But certainly I've been surprised. So I think we talked a lot about, you know, diagnosing and explain to the family, um, and now I really want to move on to the management and treatment of IBS, which I feel like could be its own episode, honestly. So, you know, what are the big buckets when you think about treatment and do you use them in adjunct or do you start with one in particular? 
Yeah. So I would say that there's a lot of treatment options and it can definitely be somewhat bewildering because, you know, you're trying to present all these options to the family and they're like, well, where do we start? What's going to work? And there's not always a lot of data. There's not a lot of personalization to this process. Um, definitely you want to kind of assess where the patient, where the family is in terms of their resources, their supports, their goals. But I think it can be really daunting in a typical clinic visit to kind of run through all these options, risks and benefits and really decide on a treatment plan uh, collaboratively. I would say in general, the most important thing beyond, you know, giving the diagnosis and explaining it is understanding what the patient's priorities are. You'll be shocked sometimes that you're sitting here talking all about pain, 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 but really what bothers them the most is actually abdominal distension and the fact that they can't wear the clothes they want to to school. They look, they feel embarrassed uh, because they're distended and uncomfortable after lunch. And so if that's their top priority, but you keep focusing on pain reduction and they're not seeing any improvement in that symptom, they could, you know, kind of lose faith in the process. And really, you want to build amazing rapport with these uh, children and their families. You want to be their biggest cheerleader. You want to have close lines of communication. And so you want some of those early victories in treatment to sort of, you know, uh, build their uh, kind of engagement and motivation and also, of course, help them feel better with what troubles them the most. Um, so in terms of the treatment landscape, it's really important to look at what are the symptoms. And I start thinking about what are the symptoms and how much do they impair or bother the patient and what are the patient's goals surrounding those symptoms. And I start with the GI system, but I expand to headaches, pelvic pain, other things, because there's opportunity to address multiple symptoms sometimes with one treatment. And then you really want to layer in that shared decision making with the family in terms of what will work and what won't work. In terms of the broad uh, kind of ideas about treatment, we talked a bit about diet and certainly the low FODMAP diet is very in vogue, has a lot of positive data, and is definitely something I use. The one caution I would uh, offer with the low FODMAPs diet is that a lot of pediatric patients with disorders of gut-brain interaction have some component of avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, or ARFID, um, and it kind of makes sense, right? If you associate eating with pain or other bodily discomfort, you're not going to eat. It's, it's, it's very adaptive at first until it becomes really disordered and maladaptive, unfortunately. Um, and so you don't want to take someone who's losing weight, who's got disordered eating and put them on an even more restrictive diet. Um, and so that's one uh, pitfall that I'd really watch out for. And certainly you can do a modified low FODMAPs diet where you sort of just cut out high FODMAPs foods without putting big, harsh restrictions on the, the patient. Uh, so diet wise, I tend to just use typical counseling, low FODMAPs if people are interested, or modified low FODMAPs. Um, Gluten-free is controversial. Some of the kind of meta-analyses that have been done suggested it doesn't help. Anecdotally, I've had some families swear by it. Um, and certainly cutting out other irritating foods, particularly uh, high lactose, fructose, and other things. A certain proportion of these patients actually really have more fructose intolerance, to be honest, um, uh, can be super helpful. Um, uh, and so that's kind of the diet category. When it comes and can now, before we move on to that, can I ask, uh, do you do the FODMAP counseling? Because that is something that I feel like I've done once or twice and have just totally butchered and that I feel like there's no great, I can't bring the FODMAP groups together because they seem kind of randomly like don't eat barley or honey uh, or apples. You know, it seems almost like a dietitian is playing a joke on me and choosing random foods that I, none of them can fit together. Can you talk about what FODMAPs are or like how you go through that counseling or is that a nutrition consult? What's um help us if we're in a primary care setting and want to try the FODMAT diet, any tips on how to encourage that with the patient? Yeah. I mean, I'm super lucky that I work with an amazing team of dietitians who I often offload this work to. I do have some colleagues who do the counseling themselves. And if you Google low FODMAP diet, there's some really lovely handouts that make it very clear with sort of green, yellow, red, sort of like stay away from these, don't do these. And I think the question is how strict are you doing it? Are you doing the four to six weeks of strict elimination, then re-adding, which to me takes a lot more counseling and a lot more thought about being nutritionally replete versus sort of going through a handout with someone and saying, hey, stay away from the red foods for a while and see how you feel. If you're doing the strict one, I'd be much more in favor if you have access of including a dietitian to really think holistically and nutritionally. If you're just sort of counseling away from certain foods like high fructose foods like honey and apples, I think it's a little easier to do even in a primary care setting, especially if you have a good visual resource for the family. Though keep in mind, a lot of these resources are very oriented towards a certain type of Western diet. I have not found great ones sometimes for certain cultures. Um, uh, and so you want to be very thoughtful about that in terms of uh, being uh, inclusive of everyone. But yes, it is to me, it's a bizarre 
diet every time I get a message from a patient like, oh, am I allowed to eat this? I'm like, oh, let me just do <laughs> yeah. a quick little search here. Make sure <laughs> forgot forgot that one. There are apps. Yeah. Um, there are apps that do the low-fat oh, diet with people. Um, what is it? Monash um, has an app. So there are apps and resources to help guide people. I just be careful because they're not geared towards children. Um, and I think about things like bone health, making sure they're getting calcium, vitamin D, et cetera, in terms of kind of cutting out certain foods. Excellent. That, that's, I think that's very extremely helpful. And so you were going to move on now. So after uh, dietary changes, uh, next steps, the treatment thoughts. Then I think like microbiome. So for like irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea, rifaximin uh, can be a really effective treatment um, uh, and something I use as much as insurance companies will allow me to. It's obviously super expensive, um, uh, but uh, modifying the microbiome can be super useful. I often will apply a probiotic when the family has the means to purchase one. I I like lactobacillus, particularly lactobacillus ruteride-based probiotics based on some initial studies about its efficacy, Um, but I find that that uh, is most helpful for particularly abdominal pain, maybe not regulating kind of the poop cycle. Um, the uh, So microbiome is an option. Then you can get into psychological strategies. And so there's many evidence-based psychological strategies for uh, chronic abdominal pain and irritable bowel syndrome. They mostly center around cognitive behavioral therapy, including exposure therapy. Um, if the brain has treated these signals as threatening and devastating, if you expose people to those threats and kind of um, habituate them to them and take away the alarm, panic, amygdala response, their symptoms tend to get better. And a lot of it's education and really taking ownership of your body and your symptoms. Uh, Mindfulness-based strategies have been used. Certainly clinical hypnotherapy is having a kind of renaissance. Um, There's so many fantastic people researching it. It's already had so many positive studies, Mm. but now I think the GI community is finally taking notice of how useful it is as a strategy. And even other therapies, including um, dynamics and other psychotherapies have been used uh, effectively. So all of these can be helpful. Um, the major limitation is identifying a provider who knows how to do them. Uh, there are not many gastropsychologists, particularly for children in this country. And so I would avoid the temptation of just clicking the refer to psychiatry button, assuming your patient's going to get this evidence-based, you know, nuanced and thoughtful treatment. The average person doing behavioral health may have tremendous expertise in various areas of behavioral health. They may not have any specific knowledge about uh, gut-directed psychotherapy. And so trying to identify that person for your practice um, that you can refer to who has some experience uh, is always uh, an amazing boon to your patients. Got it. So one of the things I'm hearing a lot of is, is really focusing on symptoms, doing some shared decision-making, trying to do um, some of the dietary or, or rifaximin probiotic balance, getting them set up with uh, people can kind of help uh, address that gut mind uh, combination through through psychological interventions. And then how about uh, other medications? So things like you, you mentioned, uh, treating the bloating or treating the constipation. I know with adults, I know, especially there's the new medications where I think it's even now guideline-based, the linaclotide is the generic medicine. There's a lot of others, none of which I can pronounce, but really seems to be this new horizon of all these different pills, at least for adult medicine. Are there a go-to, you know, and then and then not to mention uh, TCAs, antidepressants, are, are there go-tos that you typically start with, go with, or even have as first line for specific symptoms? Or, you know, as a provider, how do we approach all these, the plethora of options? Yeah, this is where it gets really depressing because there's just so little pediatric data uh, and what data exists for things like linaclotide or brucalopride um, uh, or um, lubiprostone, for example, these secreted drugs or these like kind of next generation of laxative therapies um, have suggested they're not more effective than placebo in children and actually do not have an insignificant rate of adverse effects. Not dangerous, but a lot of cramping and diarrhea. And so I use them, but I use them in a very selective way for the right patient, typically older um, patients uh, with more refractory symptoms, you know, obviously uh, a comprehensive conversation with them about risk benefits, you know, identifying, you know, not lying and saying it's definitely going to work, being honest about the fact the data is somewhat mixed. Um, a lot of times when it comes to managing bowel habits, it's the tried and true things that you you already do. It's the osmotic laxative. It's the stimulant laxative as needed. It's the clean out if someone's constipated um, and being a little bit more aggressive with the bowel regimen, keeping in mind that they could be more of a mixed type of IBS and flip into diarrhea, which is always frustrating for both you and the family. 
For the IBS with diarrhea, you can use uh, loperamide. You can use all your typical antidiarrheal agents. You just really want to convince yourself that it is IBS with diarrhea. You don't want to apply antidiarrheals to an inflammatory infectious situation, which could prolong symptoms or create adverse outcomes like toxic megacolon. But all of these sort of first-line things to manage bowel habits are totally reasonable. Um, low FODMAPs diet can be helpful, particularly for bloating and diarrhea, which is a time I'll use it. Bloating is interesting because sometimes it's actually bloating, like a sensation of fullness. Um, and in one study of adults, uh, they did CAT scans on people and found that in 50% of patients with disorders of gut-brain interaction, they didn't actually have increased gas. They just sensed that they were full, but they didn't have any radiographic evidence of increased gas. So it's very sensation-driven. Uh, but distension is different than bloating. And so you always want to clarify when someone says they're bloated, is their belly sticking out? Or are they feeling full and uncomfortable or both? Because abdominal distension is sometimes abdominophrenic dysonergia and discoordination of the diaphragm and the abdominal wall musculature, which could respond really nicely to diaphragmatic breathing. Bloating in general does well with diaphragmatic breathing, but it's a quick and easy intervention that you can give to um, a young person that they could even do sitting in class that can be super helpful for reducing pain, reducing bloating, and certainly helping that diaphragm and abdominal wall kind of coordinate a little better, almost like a physical therapy intervention. Um, when it comes to managing pain, a lot of people start with antispasmodic medications, medicines like dicyclamine, hyoscyamine, or ciproheptadine, and I use them very frequently. It's sort of nice, especially for the kids that just have like kind of severe symptoms a few days a month to have an option to kind of get them to school. Um, but long term, you know, you have all this worry about, you know, kind of anticholinergic toxicity and constipation, all these other things that make me very nervous about indefinitely using them, even though they can be helpful and they don't have great pediatric evidence, by the way, even though they, you know, you look up the dosing for hyoscyamine, you can use it in a, you know, a newborn, it seems, you know, safely, quote unquote. Um, I, I get a little leery about using them long term. I think they're a good strategy during kind of increased periods of pain as more something to add. I rarely use them as kind of solely my pain-based therapy. And then we get into medicines that are uh, more, uh, we call them neuromodulators now. You you know might use language like an antidepressant or an antipsychotic, but we call them neuromodulators because really what they're doing is modifying the nervous system to reduce pain. SSRI type medicines have very little evidence for reducing abdominal pain. I've seen them be helpful. I think they're much more helpful for someone with a primary anxiety process who happens to have abdominal pain and certainly are the first line per um, ACAP guidelines uh, for the management of that. Um, but I don't use them for pain-predominant symptoms almost ever. When it comes to pain, I tend to use SNRI-type medicines, like duloxetine is sort of my go-to, which is not only FDA-approved in children, I believe, uh, 7 and up for the management of anxiety, but has an FDA approval for 13 and up for fibromyalgia. And I um, will sometimes tell people that uh, one of its sister medications, milnasopran, I believe it's called, that's available in Canada, came to market only for pain management, is not actually used for psychiatric indications. So SNRI is usually my go-to, especially when a kid has severe pain and especially when they have comorbid psychiatric symptoms. Use of other kind of medicines like atypical antidepressants are possible. Certainly tricyclic antidepressants have been used a long time in pain management. I just find for their benefit, you need to kind of endure a lot more side effects in terms of they're, they're just very dirty medicines that had a lot of receptors and are very sedating and cause weight gain and all these problems uh, outside of um, obviously EKG changes. Um, and so I, I use them, but not as often. And keep in mind that really tricyclic antidepressants have little to no role in the management of pediatric mood symptoms. So if there's any mood process, you're not going to get any much benefit from the tricyclic antidepressant. It's much better to use an SNRI, which has an evidence basis. Um, we'll do things like low-dose antipsychotics at night, which help promote sleep, can be useful for especially morning nausea. Medications like um, mirtazapine can be helpful for nausea and sleep and appetite. These are all options at this point. You might be, you know, phoning a friend or collaborating with a behavioral health specialist, you know, if you're not very used to using these medicines. But I always ask people to keep these in mind because often you'll be seeing a young person who happens to be on one of these medicines or is about to start a medicine. And that's when I jump in and say, hey, you know, you said you wanted to do fluoxetine for anxiety, but I'm dealing with this, you know, really refractory visceral hypersensitivity. Would you consider, you know, doctor, a psychiatrist, um, you know, maybe starting with an SNRI medicine in this situation. This is amazing. And I, I pictured the, the show notes table already of just kind of these great uh, uh, symptom-based treatments. Wonderful. Uh, Angela, did you want to ask about other kind of broader CAM-based medicines? Yeah, let's do that. So, you know, I think, again, like we've been talking about equity so much, and a lot of this might not be covered by insurance, but I'm also wondering about other adjunct therapies like acupressure or puncture and like biofeedback and a lot of these other modalities and if there's any evidence behind yeah. them. 
There's a growing body of evidence for acupuncture and acupressure. There's one really well-designed study in adults for acupuncture for irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, actually. Um, They're definitely things I encourage for those who can access them. Um, I think we need a little bit, it's just so hard to design like randomized control trials, I feel, with a lot of these modalities. Like how do you create a chamfer auricular acupressure? Um, That being said, people are doing that research and so far it's been very promising. So these are all things I I try to um, connect people to, especially when they kind of give me feedback they're not interested in kind of traditional medicine strategies and really want to explore non-pharmacologic strategies. There is a device uh, that uh, has come to market that is FDA approved for um, adolescents with pain associated with irritable bowel syndrome called IB-STEM. That's a device that goes on your ear and submits electrical signals that modify uh, three of your cranial nerves to decrease pain. And so that's um, those programs are sprouting up around the country, as you can imagine, unfortunately, an expensive device. But uh, that's a really nice emerging non-pharmacologic strategy, re- uh, really relying on peripheral nerve uh, uh, stimulation to reduce symptoms. So that's also a really attractive option that's non-pharmacologic as well. This is amazing. I mean, it sounds like there's already a ton of options, but a lot more on the horizon. So it's, I imagine, an exciting time to be in the field of IBS. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I, I love what I do. I'm looking for more people to join me if anyone's listening. Um, but I do think uh, the, the uh, certainly the future for uh, patients with disorders of gut-brain interaction is brighter than it's ever been. Um, and we're certainly having far more success clinically and feeling much less inept on a day-to-day basis, basis which is always nice. Yeah. All right. Well, you you may have inspired a lot of, we have a lot of med student listeners, a lot of residency listeners, uh, maybe a lot of GI fellows listening. So, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll send them to, to your field. I, uh, I'm conscious of time. And so I'm curious, you know, uh, we've talked about diagnosis. We've talked about equity issues. We've talked about the different treatment ranges and, and buckets. What are the main take-home points that you think our listeners should walk away with? Or what are some things that you really want to make sure that everyone gets away from this episode? I think I would say first, you know, just because we've created this structure that separates functional from organic doesn't mean we have to stick with it if it's not working. And I think more and more evidence has suggested it doesn't work for many of our patients. So feel free, particularly for all the uh, younger listeners who are going to be the face of healthcare very soon to just completely disregard an antiquated concept that someone came up with uh, centuries ago. Um, I would really emphasize that the care of these patients relies on effective partnership, rapport building, and really listening and understanding the dimensions of symptoms and how they affect your patient, because that's where your treatment plan is going to come from, including your shared goals with your patient and your family. I would avoid um, over-diagnostics in these patients. I would avoid over-subspecialty referral when there are no alarm features, and particularly when your exam and any sort of preliminary workup that's indicated is negative, as more testing is often low yield for these patients and introduces the opportunity for atrogenic and other harm to them. In fact, I would have a very low threshold to not only create partnerships with behavioral health care for these patients with chronic symptoms of any sort, but certainly chronic gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, and I would really work to understand uh, the kind of not only the biologic model of these diseases, but the psychosocial components that I think are crucial in treating them because uh, it really starts in your practice in terms of educating and providing those supports and that guidance to kind of address holistically the disease. And I would get start getting comfortable comfortable with some of these medications. Um, There's a lot of great resources, whether it be up to date, whether it be the Rome Foundation that gives you some really nice kind of algorithms to work through in terms of how to uh, treat, uh, not only diagnose, but treat these disorders. Um, And I think, um, you know, sort of, it doesn't often feel like people really take ownership of these diseases. You know, GI says it's a psych issue. Psych says it's, you know, GI issue. Primary care is just like, can someone, you know, partner with us? (laughs) Um, And so I think we all need to take a little bit more responsibility, not only in engaging our colleagues, reducing stigma and caring for these patients, but really uh, supporting these families and uh, providing the high quality and uh, coordinated care that they need to promote their ability and their success um, and really take them off the pathway of chronic disability. That's super cool. I actually, that reminds me of a question I wanted to ask you earlier, which is like, in an ideal world, you have such a wraparound team, right? Like PCP, dietitian, GI doc, psych doc. Is there a point here where you would say like a PCP can manage some, all of this? Like where in this path would you refer to specialty if you were a pediatrician? 
I, I definitely think if there's diagnostic uncertainty, um, you're probably going to, you know, in the GI realm, you're starting to talk about needing an endoscopy or other testing that just can't be performed in a primary care setting. Um, and so that's a completely reasonable referral if there's potential alarm features or kind of uh, aspects of the symptoms that to you does not uh, feel um, like it, it is consistent with irritable bowel syndrome or another disorder of gut-brain interaction. I would say most IBS and functional pain falls in the category of mild to moderate symptomatology and can be managed in a primary care setting. Um, I think the more severe patients who need wraparound and other, you know, kind of more comprehensive and and coordinated services benefit from treatment settings. Unfortunately, we don't have a ton of, you know, really well-designed treatment settings for these patients, but we've seen models of them being highly successful at places like Boston Children's Hospital. So it is possible and they are really emerging as people are recognizing these disorders and taking more interest in treating them. So I I think we're heading in a great direction there, Uh, but certainly the patients with more severe symptomatology who are missing school, who are really progressing into disability would likely benefit benefit from that sort of care model and uh, kind of referral from a primary care setting. I feel like I have so many questions I could ask you. <laughs> There's so much of this topic I feel like I didn't learn at all in medical school um, or even really in residency. But um, for the sake of time, we should probably wrap up and say, you know, do you have anything that you would like to plug, like any resources or just any like personal projects? Yeah, I would say Seattle Children's Hospital, our gut brain health program is launching. I'm very excited to create a, a space uh, for patients and their families with these conditions to really feel heard and supported and sort of get on the pathway to recovery. So if you're in the uh, Washington area and you're dealing with this or, you know, anything, you know, related to this, please feel free to reach out to us. Um, we'll um, be kind of building this um, uh, interdisciplinary model that I think these patients really uh, benefit the most from. Uh, and so, yeah, feel free to check us out anytime. Amazing. We'll have it all in the show notes. Hannibal, thank you so much. This this was outstanding. I feel like this was such a great overview of a complex topic, but I am optimistic about my next patient coming in with IBS and very optimistic about the future of IBS. And so I uh, am grateful for you you sharing all these pearls and insights. Thank you for, for joining us on the Cribsiders. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. This was great. Okay, everyone, this has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Dr. Angela Zane, our executive producer for this episode, and our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur. We'd also like to thank our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and the newsletter. Thank you for joining us tonight. I've been Justin Lee Burke. And I've been Angela Wysang. Good night, everyone. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.